Uh, as we get started this morning, how about we pray? There we are. Father, we give you thanks for your word. Thanks, Lord, for all that it teaches us about Jesus, about you and about ourselves. Lord God, as we come to this passage this morning, we pray that you give us ears to hear, hearts to believe. We pray, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, there's an ongoing question that our nation has grappled with for really the past 200 years or so. What does it mean to be an Australian? From the earliest days of Aboriginal civilizations, many tens of thousands of years ago, to the time of Australia as a penal colony, uh, to today, having travelled through the period of federation, uniting the various colonies together into the one nation, the, the question really is, what does it mean to be an Australian? Is there something that we all have in common, something that we could all relate to? And given that we are a fairly multicultural place, that's a good question. There's not really a national dress unless it's maybe a singlet, shorts and thongs for the blokes. Uh, is there really a national dish? Not really. Maybe a meat pie or a lamington or a pavlova, but again, being multicultural, not everybody appreciates these things. So what is it that shapes our culture, our, our way of life, the way we think and act here in Australia? Well, it's not these outward appearance things. It's a more inward way of thinking and believing. So if someone were to come here from another country and wanted to become a citizen, uh, they might want to go through the Australian citizenship process. And as the final part of that, you'd attend a ceremony where you make this pledge. From this time forward, under God, I pledge my loyalty to Australia and its people, whose democratic beliefs I share, whose rights and liberties I respect, and whose laws I will uphold and obey. That's the culture our government wants people in this country to have. Uh, we want to have a country where people respect the rule of law. Uh, people are loyal to democratic values, rights and freedoms that we have, and a promise to uphold the law. And so it's pretty clear if you didn't like democracy, you didn't plan to obey the laws, and you didn't like freedom and individual thought, then this is not the country for you. If you were to stand up there and make that kind of a pledge, well, then you might be saying something that isn't true because you don't stand for these things. So if that's the ethos, the culture of our nation, and every nation may well have its own distinctive culture, then the question is if the Bible has something like that for Christians. Is there some sort of a culture or an ethos or a way of life Somebody could point to and say, that is a Christian. That is somebody who follows Jesus and I can see by the way they speak and act. I think this passage gives us something very much like that. We see three short stories, events that Jesus relays or Mark relays about Jesus' ministry. Three short stories that are showing us something, the culture that we who follow Jesus ought to have. Now, one of the ways that New Testament speaks of us is that we are citizens of heaven. Uh, our citizenship is in heaven, Paul says. So if that's the case, what kind of 
act and thought and deed should there be if we're part of that kingdom? Well, firstly, we're going to see that Jesus is leading by example in verses 32 and 34. Have a look there in Mark chapter 10, verses 32 and 34. What is Jesus doing with his disciples? Well, he's teaching them what it means to be one of his followers. He doesn't say, you can follow me and do whatever you like, I don't mind. He says, no, no, this is what it looks like to follow me. Here's what I mean. This is now the third time Jesus has predicted his death and resurrection. Now, he did that the first time, Mark chapter 8. He did it a second time, Mark chapter 9. And this is now the third time in Mark chapter 10. He says that he'll be handed over to the Gentiles, he'll be killed, and three days later he'll rise again. Now at the end of this chapter we see why that's the case. Mark 10, 45, it says what? Jesus has given his life as a ransom for many. He gives up himself for the benefit of others. That's what Jesus' ministry is all about. And right at the end of this chapter in Mark 10, 46, we see Jesus arriving in Jericho. Now that's only 45 kilometres away from Jerusalem. And why is Jerusalem so important? Because Jesus has said time and time again, that's where this is going to happen. That's where he's going to go, he'll be killed and he'll rise again in Jerusalem. So this whole story of Mark has been tracing his journey from up north in Galilee down parts of Israel now at this point he's only about as far away from Jerusalem as Leeton is from Griffith about 45 kilometers so from here you might just get to Leeton as the crow flies now this means that Jesus death and resurrection is coming soon not only is it the third time that he said it would happen but geographically he's getting very close this is about to happen and the disciples would be asking this question of well what will it look like when you go to Jerusalem given that we're so close what will happen next is this really going to be what happens is Jesus telling us the truth is it going to be that when we get there he is going to die or is this perhaps some sort of mistake? Well, take a look at Mark 29 to 31. This is the ultimate fulfillment of why Jesus is heading to Jerusalem. He has left God in heaven. He has come to earth so that in doing so he can help people follow him and anybody who does can receive a hundred times more than what they leave behind in this age and in the age to come, eternal life. That's his mission. His mission for some was perhaps to be some sort of a, a conquering king and that seemed to be the idea on Palm Sunday that people were welcoming him as the king, the guy who's coming here to establish a kingdom much like King David or Solomon in the Old Testament but what does Jesus say here? His mission is to give people eternal life. 
Later on, we see, of course, him telling them that it's his life that is given as a ransom for many. This kind of servant leadership attitude that Jesus has is what he wants his disciples to pick up on. Jesus is trying to show by example the kind of life he wants his followers to have, to literally do as he does, give up the rights and responsibilities that they may have and follow him even to the point of death. Friends, that's what the Christian life is all about. That's why Jesus elsewhere tells his followers if they want to be part of his kingdom, they need to take up their cross and follow him. It means leaving your old way of life behind. It means that when you come to faith in Christ, you're committed. You give up whatever your old life may have entailed and you devote yourself to him entirely. As Dan alluded to, I've moved a fair way from home to be out here. I've got a mum, a dad, grandparents, brother, sister, uh, nephews, nieces, the whole shebang, all up there in the northern rivers. But you know what? Having left all that, I've gained so much more. I have gained brothers and sisters in Christ here and in Leeton and in Sydney and all around the world Anybody who claims the name of Jesus has that same privilege. It might be hard for me in one way to see the flood ravage up there. And I was up there not long ago before this chaos of the second flood that rolled through. But despite my heartache at leaving the people and the place there, I'm actually not that upset. Not because I don't care, I do, but I can see the benefit in leaving that to gain far, far more. Following Jesus is hard. There is a life of sacrifice, particularly when you're in my line of work. But ultimately, we've got to see the big picture is that following Jesus is eternal life. That's where we're heading. It is brothers and sisters in Christ from all around the world. And even though it may be hard to leave some of our old life behind and follow Jesus, we've got to see the benefit Jesus says that nobody who does that will fail to gain a hundred times more in this life and in the age to come, eternal life. So as his followers, we're going to take up his model of leadership, one of dying to selfishness, living for selflessness, which reminds me, of course, of yesterday's working bee you had. Right? This is an opportunity for people to be selfless you've got to give up your time and energy and it can be hard physical labor at times but there's things to do that benefit others it's a life of sacrificial giving giving up of your time to bless and benefit others and of course we heard earlier in the kids talk of all the ministry opportunities that there are even something as simple as cleaning up after morning tea it's a kind of servant leadership That's the idea that Jesus has in mind. Church is not meant to be a social club where we just get together and hang out with our friends. Our church has got to be a place where we are loving and sacrificially serving one another, following Christ's example. And when we do that, we see that although it may cost us something, we gain so much more. But you see... 
Although Jesus is trying to teach his disciples this, they don't get it. They just can't see what he means. So if you turn your attention to the disciples and their response to Jesus' death and resurrection, you'll see, of course, that they just don't get it. Jesus has told them that he will die, he will rise, and that this is the model for their way of life if they are following him. But look at James and John. It's a bit rich, isn't it? Because James and John come to him and they say, Jesus, we want you to do whatever we ask of you. Did you catch that? They didn't even say, Jesus, would it be okay if... No, no, hey, Jesus, we just want carte blanche to say whatever we want and will you do it for us? Can you just imagine the nerve of these guys? Hey, Jesus, do whatever we ask of you. Is that okay? I mean, no, it's not, but they ask anyway. All right, Jesus says, fine, go on. What do you want me to do for you? It's a great question, and it just exposes their lack of faith. It exposes where their hearts truly lie. And this is what they ask. Lord, when you come into your glory... Can one of us sit at your right hand and, and one of us sit on your left? And Jesus just must have stared at them blankly. Like, you don't know what you are asking. You haven't got a clue why I'm here. You haven't picked up on anything I've just said about sacrifice and service. Like, why? Why would you ask this? But it makes sense because they're thinking of Jesus' glory as some kind of earthly thing, much like perhaps the people on Palm Sunday. He's the king. He's going to come and establish some sort of glorious rule with plenty of money and who knows what kind of wealth and success and status. And when that happens, James and John see an opportunity. I know if we're friends with Jesus and he's the one with all the status and money and power, maybe just maybe we'll get some of that for ourselves. And you see, this is the trouble. They think that following Jesus isn't a life of sacrifice, selflessness and service. They see it as a life of status. It's something that they could gain for themselves. Following Jesus will directly benefit me. I get something out of this. I will be blessed somehow physically here and now following Jesus. But Jesus turns this all on its head and he asks them a question. He says, no, I, that's not for you. In fact, it's not for me to grant those places on my left and right. That's not for you in a roundabout kind of way. And then he turns to the rest of his disciples and he says this. You know, while they're thinking about how they can be his sidekick, you know, a bit like Batman and Robin or Superman and Supergirl, something like that. Jesus turns all this on its head. He says, well, can you be baptized with the same baptism that I will have? And can you drink the cup that I will drink? And they say, oh, yes, of course, Jesus, yes, yes. What does he mean? What's he talking about, baptisms and cups and... The disciples never mentioned any of that. Why does he answer their question 
with a question. Well, Jesus is alluding to Old Testament passages, things like in Jeremiah 25, 15 to 17. Another good example might be Isaiah 51. The, the cup is a symbol of God's wrath. These Old Testament prophets use it as an analogy for God's anger and God's judgment on sin. And so Psalm 58, 7 speaks also of the cup of God's wrath. And Jesus is alluding to this as a way of saying, listen here, you two, can you suffer God's wrath the way I will? Do you understand what that means? Do you understand why I have come? I've just told you I've come to die. I've just explained that that is for eternal life. I've just explained to you why I'm here. You don't get it. You've got it all wrong. You can't really do exactly like I do because only I can die for the sins of the world. That's what Jesus says. So although he says, yes, you can drink from the cup and yes, you can be baptized, but this place of status I can't give you. Yes, there may be certain circumstances where they will suffer in some way just as Jesus does. But nobody else could possibly die in our place, suffering the wrath of God as Jesus did. That is exclusive to him. And so Jesus isn't about to promise these two who think they're great any kind of status in this life. In fact, what he's trying to get them to see is that he's offering them the opposite. He's offering them an opportunity to become nothing, to become less than, to become a servant, not someone with status. And Jesus explains to the rest of the disciples too in verses 42 to 46 about the rulers of the Gentiles who lord it over the people. But among you it must not be so. This is a kind of servant leadership Jesus epitomizes. Although Jesus is God with all power, all glory, all might, he can do whatever he wants. What does he do? He comes to earth to willingly sacrifice himself. He gives up his glory. He gives up status. He gives up power to become a servant for all who follow him. That is what he wants his disciples to do. And it's funny that there's a little aside here where the rest of the disciples become indignant with James and John and I wonder why that's recorded. And, you know, different people have different approaches to this, but I think they're indignant because they are annoyed that they've missed out. James and John have asked first. So the status of right and left in Jesus' glory is taken. And now I'm indignant because I've missed out. Someone else has got in before me. And so that seems to be why I think Jesus takes the whole of the disciples aside to teach them what it means to follow him. This kind of servant leadership is essential for all who follow Jesus. The way to become great in God's kingdom is not through exerting power, influence, military might. It's not like Putin in Russia. Currently, very few people think he's a great man. Ruling with an iron fist, crushing all dissent, effectively causing havoc for your own personal benefit. 
That is not the way to be great in the kingdom of heaven. But among Jesus' followers, what does Jesus want? He needs to get his followers to follow his example. Jesus did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. That's where we need to think about our own lives. Are we people who are willing to give up in order to gain more? Are we willing to come alongside people and serve them, not expect them to serve us? Are we willing to serve one another in this church and our community around us? Are our attitudes, our culture, our ethos shaped by Jesus or our own selfish ambition? As we prepare for the congregational meeting after this where we get the ball rolling on process to start finding a new minister, I want you to keep very clearly in mind the kind of qualities we want. The kind of minister that you call next must absolutely epitomise these qualities. Selflessness, generosity, a selflessness, not a selfishness, a willingness to come here to seek and save the lost, a willingness to serve you and the community, not for his own personal benefit, but for the benefit of others. So this is what Jesus wants his disciples to see. You've got these two guys, James and John. They can see perfectly well in that their eyes are working, but they can't see Jesus. They just don't get it. The disciples are effectively blind to who Jesus is. But there's one guy that's not. And the irony is that he's blind. You've got the two disciples who can see but are blind and you've got the blind man who can't see but sees Jesus perfectly. It's just a beautiful story. We have a blind man who is eager to meet Jesus and he understands who Jesus is. He sees Jesus truly for who he is and why he's come. Now just a word about this guy. He would have been the lowest of the low in society. Not only is he blind, he's a beggar. And nobody in those days would have had any time for him. A social outcast, degenerate, disgraceful, no good, rubbish kind of person. Yet it's that kind of guy who shows us what it is to trust Jesus. And then we've got the guys who hang around with Jesus who show us what it doesn't look like to follow Jesus. So the blind man hears that Jesus is coming and he wants to see Jesus, of course, physically, but also wants to talk to Jesus because he thinks that Jesus is the solution to his problem. So in verse 51, when they tee up the meeting, Jesus asks him the exact same question. Coming back to Dan's comment about why did Jesus ask the blind man, what do you want from me? The reason is because the disciples got the exact same question, word for word. Jesus says to them, 
What do you want from me? We get their response. We want status. We want glory. We want... What does a blind man say? I just want to see. He doesn't say, Jesus, give me glory, give me status, give me money, give me success. He just says, Lord, I just want to see. That's it. It's not much. I'm not in it for success. I'm not in it for fame. I don't want to follow you for my own benefit in this life. I just want to see. That's it. That'll be enough for me. Happiness, success, status, wealth, all these things that the disciples are chasing, this blind man says, no, I don't want that. I just want to see. That's all. It's just this beautiful picture of a guy who comes to Jesus humbly. He knows that he's not worth anything. He knows that Jesus has no obligation to do anything for him, but he just comes to Jesus trusting that Jesus will heal him and just let him see. There's this wonderful picture there in verse 52. Immediately he received his sight and followed Jesus on the road. In fact, you could even translate it, follow Jesus on the way. It's kind of a euphemism for him becoming a disciple. We've got this great picture of a guy who meets Jesus and becomes a disciple and then follows Jesus. Sadly, I think sometimes those of us who've known Jesus for a long time and hung around him don't see him clearly. We're like those disciples. And this passage is a wake-up call to all of us, whether we've known him for years or perhaps not at all. The message is clear that following Jesus is not a means for our own personal gain. It's not about us gaining wealth and status and fame and fortune, success and glory. No, that's what the disciples wanted, but they couldn't see Jesus clearly. Instead, we have this example of Bartimaeus, the blind man. He understands that Jesus has saved him, healed him. He's done nothing for his status, wealth, success, nothing. But that's okay. He gets up and follows Jesus on the road anyway. You see, Jesus is the solution to our problem of selfishness and sin. Jesus has died to take the wrath of God against us because we too are prone to that same attitude. Now, if you understand who Jesus is and you get it, then you too will be like this blind man, not coming to Jesus for your own benefit and success, just simply willing to follow him. But you see, if that's what you are not willing to do, then you're a blind disciple. If you think that Jesus has not come to serve, but instead to be served, then you'll take that attitude toward others. If you think that Jesus is a means to an end here and now, you've missed the point. Don't seek first place, status and success. Don't seek to be great in the kingdom of God through your own selfish ambition. Instead, seek to be last so that you will be great in God's kingdom. Let's pray. Father God, help us to see Jesus clearly for who he is. Help us to take the attitude of this blind man willing to follow Jesus, not for his own personal gain and satisfaction, but simply because he sees who Jesus truly is, a guy who has come to be a servant, 
Lord, help us to put our trust in Jesus and so live as kingdom citizens, people who live as Jesus instructs. Help us to see him clearly, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.